Hello, and welcome to another episode of Oconus, The Contractor's Life. I'm your host, Scott Dresser. Uh, we are doing a Skype call today with uh, Mr. William Ledford. He is my guest for today's show. Um, so without uh, stepping on anything and mudding it up and m- making the waters all muddy, I'm just going to bring him right into the show. Uh, William, welcome. Hey, glad to be here. Thank you very much for uh, for, for taking the uh, time out of your day to uh, come on the show. Um, so, William, for the folks that are listening to this, uh, could you provide some uh, background insight into who you are, uh, what you did uh, in history prior to becoming a private security contractor? Um, sure. We'll go for the uh, super abbreviated version here. Okay. Um, I, I joined the military uh, July 1993. Um, like a lot of kids, I could never figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I bounced around between MOSs. My first stint out was with the New Mexico Army National Guard. I was air defense artillery. Um, then I went active duty and I was a military police officer for a little while. I got out circa 1998. Um, did the private investigator thing for a little bit. Uh, some private security bounced around into some call centers, got a little bit of a tech background with America Online back when it used to be a thing. Um, in 2003, I moved from Albuquerque, New Mexico to Austin, Texas, and uh, got involved with the Texas Army National Guard, who I found out had a uh, long-range surveillance detachment there. And I was like, well, okay. I'd been to some schools that I never really got to apply. And uh, they brought me in. And rather than, you know, that one week in a month, two weeks a year thing, they immediately said, welcome to the Army next or yeah, Texas Army National Guard. You're deploying and off off I went. So I did that for a little while Um, in 2009. I got out and uh, got involved in federal security with uh, Federal Protective Services uh, in downtown Austin, uh, basically uh, federal courthouses, Department of Treasury, Social Security departments, things like that. Um, But through that, I got an OPM clearance and uh, I reached out to a triple canopy uh, recruiter who snatched me up as fast as he could and off to Kuwait I went in 2011. And uh, from, well, I started the process, I guess, back into 2010. I did that until 2013 in Kuwait, working force protection at places like Arif John and Buring, uh, glorified yard gnome stuff, standing in towers, staring at sand dunes. Um, came home for a little bit, got back into uh, contract security on the state side, and uh, a company I had applied for before I was leaving Kuwait reached out to me, and it were called Homeland Intelligence Technologies, and they snatched me up to go to Iraq for a little while. And that was probably the best contract job I've ever had in my life. It was small group, small overhead, and we were in charge of preparing the Iraqi Air Force in Balad Air Force Base to receive 32 F-16s from a Lockheed Martin purchase that they'd made almost 12 years prior. But we, that was all finally coming to fruition, and they needed to be ready. So we helped their security teams spin up. We helped develop training packages for them. We were their QC. We were Basically, everything I'd ever done in my life, I felt like I had been training to do that job specifically. 
Mm. Um, but like all good things, uh, my marriage that had been going pretty strong for about 20 years started to hit some rough spots. Apparently, my wife uh, didn't like being alone all the time, so I opted to uh, not renew, come home, and, and try to fix that. And, of course, that was a, a lost cause. So uh, Hit reached back out to me because they had picked up a contract with ICE down in, uh, well, they had five separate locations, but they were specifically looking at me in Brownsville, Texas. And so I worked with Hit Aviation there and the ICE Air program helping to deport people back to places unknown, you know, and, uh, that was a cool gig for about a year. And then, uh, I opted out of that and moved back into federal contract security and I'm doing that in Nashville now. So here I am. (laughs) Okay. So you've gone full circle now, basically. Yeah. Wow. Okay. What a, what a ride, huh? Yeah, I guess I'm, who would have thought 2020 was going to hit like it did? That's all I got to say. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you. So, so now you were in the military for uh, rough math here. What? Ten years? More than that? Uh, ten years active. Thirteen total. Wow. Okay. And your last MOS stint was. You was you were an MP in between. Two others, is that correct? Right. I, I got out an MP. When I got picked up for LURS, I reclassed over to 11 Bravo. Okay. And then uh, when I came back from the Balkans, they put me into a 25 Bravo slot with an information operations group. Mm. And so I finished Intel or IO as a 25 Bravo. Like, okay. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm gathering based on what you said earlier that um, – intelligence slash surveillance is kind of that's where your passion or your interest is uh yeah i i guess i I went to school for commercial art and graphic design don't ask me how i wound up where i'm at so uh (laughs) i guess i'm a keen observer well we'll leave it at that (laughs) so you uh so you have what you have a college uh college uh degree or background uh yeah I wouldn't say college. The art center of uh, Albuquerque is a lot of things. They like to call themselves a college, and they handed me a degree, but okay. uh, a commercial artist, I guess you could say. Huh. All right. So so you went from the military. You, you did some work in the States, and then you finally ended up uh, over, in the, over in the deserts working for Triple Canopy at the time. They took yeah. over uh, saying that all, a lot of that stuff changed. It was log cap. Then it became K-Boss, and now it's something else. So you were there at the time it was K-Boss. They called it K-Boss, correct? Yeah, I was K-Boss, ITT Excellus. Um, And then uh, during the time I was there was when Triple Canopy merged with everybody, and they became Concellus. And that was about the time I was getting out of that because we went from being, you know, actual part of a company to just being a number and a mass. Hmm. Okay. So – yeah, we won't dive too deep into that, but you, you had a similar experience that, that a lot of guys are having where um, the, uh, the company you work for gets so big that what used to be fun is no more fun. Well, yeah, you just sort of disappear in the ether. And, right. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, and you worked there in Kuwait for two years, you said? Yeah, I was there from 2011 to 2013. Okay. 
and you work at Eric Jan and Beering. Um, I'm surprised Beering's still there. Um, well, in 2011 it was. I don't know if it's still there now. Uh, huh. Okay. Yeah, they were. It was all part of the the de-escalation process, so everything coming back through had to. It, it was all oh. coming back down the pipe. Arif John was usually the the last place, like blowing up equipment and people came for demo. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. Yeah. After the surge was over, and and they were saying, okay, we're getting out of Iraq. Uh, for sure this time. Yeah. Okay. I remember that. Okay. So did you spend more time at Arifjan or more time at Buring? Oh, more time at Arifjan. Definitely. The only and time what, I was up at Buring was either training or, uh, you know, an occasional escort. That'd be about it. Okay. So for, for the folks that are listening that don't know what Arifjan means or what it is or Buring, I mean, to them, these, these are just names and they, and we've said the country Kuwait, uh, would you mind, you know, uh, to the extent you want, explain to uh, those folks what Airjan is, what Beering is, and what the difference is between them, if there is? Well, in the time I was there, um, Airjan was an initial receiving and staging point for U.S. troops that were coming into country. It would basically help acclimate them. Uh, Army Reserve was using it primarily as a as a foothold to to rotate soldiers in so that they could get their deployment experiences or whatever. I don't know. People were using it for promotion points. It seemed like more than combat <laughs> readiness. But uh, it was also Kuwait's air defense center. It was you, you had a lot of things coming in and out of of Arif John, but primarily it was the first step. People would come in. That's where they would get ready, and then they would go to Buring, where they would do their their movement to fire exercises and their their battle drill sixes and their their convoy escort exercises. Basically, trying to get used to operating in in climate weather before finally pushing up to Iraq. Hmm. Okay. Now, uh, at the t- I recollect and, and tell and. Is it, I'm assuming it's the same, but you can tell us. Arifjan was the biggest uh, U.S. military base in Kuwait at one time. Is, is it? Is that still the case from your experience? And when I left, it absolutely was, yeah. yeah. Everything else was just sort of a shadow. Right, okay. And a lot of traffic, a lot of people out there. I mean, it was a busy place. Lots of contractors, lots of, yeah. And sooner or later, everybody coming into the desert passes through Arifjan, it seemed like. <laughs> right. Okay. So, uh, what, what, when you got there, um, th- there's all kinds of questions. Uh, so let's, so you landed in Kuwait and your first, your first, uh, assignment was at Arif Jan. Yes. Uh, what was that like for you? Uh, was, I, I guess you could say it compared was kind of you, compared to what you did, you know, and, and you land there. What, what, yeah. yeah. Can you recollect? A little eye-opening. I mean, you go there with certain preconceived notions, and we, especially when you first step into the the contractor role from the military side of the house, and uh, you learn pretty quick that there's no there's no door kicking, there's no war fighting anymore. And uh, the most terrifying thing is when somebody walks past you with a box and they're just taking everybody's passports, and it's, you realize really quickly that you are a puppet without the strings. You you are you are out on your own. And uh, a little nerve wracking. You get used to it pretty quick, though. And then once the paycheck, once you get that first paycheck, you you kind of like, oh, I get it now. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, were you guys then? Were you? Um, 
you know, things have changed uh, and maybe they've kind of swung back to the way they used to be. Who knows? Um, but I mean, there were people that lived on the base and people who lived off the base, depending on who they were, you know, like contractors, for example. Um, so you, we, at the time you were working for them, um, I heard I heard all kinds of things. But I, were you guys living off base still at that time or did yeah. they bring some? Yeah, they they would bus us in every morning and then bus us back at the end of the day. And they had shuttles that would go back and forth to the different locations. I was in uh, uh, some really crappy apartments. I can't remember the district specifically, but Shaka Towers was where I was at. And they were just down the road from a place called Swiss Gym, which we wound up moving to in 2012. But, uh, you know, I had a mosque approximately 350 feet outside my bedroom window so 315 every morning I got to wake up to that little salute and uh, when you get one day off a week it gets a little irritating <laughs> I know I know what you're saying yeah uh, I spent some time in Kuwait uh, and I don't remember the towers but I it, but it was you know anyway and I, I distinctly recall what you talk about it's kind of an eerie feeling when you wake up to that and you hear that it's like what <laughs> yeah yeah Absolutely. So you were out on the economy, um, you know, and what was the tempo while while you got while you were there? What was the tempo, uh, you know, work schedules and stuff like that? We were contracted uh, six 12 hour days, um, but the day typically started for us about you know, three, three thirty because you got to be on the bus by four a.m. Mm. Um, you, you bus in, you get there about five o'clock, you get ready. They have a, a stand to or guard mount. And usually cover some sort of training brief and you do your weapons draw and everything. And then they roll you out to the towers so that you're at the tower at six o'clock. Then at 1800, then they come out and they swap you out with the night guys or vice versa. You're 18 to, to zero six. But, uh, and then you, you go, you do your weapons turn in. Typically at that point, that's when you go, you grab your, uh, you know, a little bit of gym time, maybe grab a bite to eat and then you jump on the shuttle Otherwise, you you just sort of let the bus take you back at the end of your shift and try to do all that stuff out on the economy. The economy is a whole nother nightmare all by itself, though, because just being you, you're immediately paying a thousand times more than the person that just walked through the door before you. So they still got you guys pegged, don't they? (laughs) Oh, yeah, absolutely. You go into any Pakala anywhere in Kuwait City and they, they spot you coming. They smelled you coming the second you got off the bus. Uh, yeah that's amazing some things never change well they probably spotted you in the airport actually before you got outside <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> all right all right um so so did you guys uh, have access to all the base stuff the stuff that's on base with with your cat card and whatnot i mean were all yeah. those privileges still bestowed yeah you you got to use an apo as your physical address you could use any of the uh, storefronts that they had there and uh, you had access to the, to the PX and commissary. So it all worked out pretty good. The only place where it didn't get you a free ride is you still had to pay a little bit of money if you went to the chow hall. So. Oh, they were still interesting. Okay. Yeah. My goodness. Some things really don't change. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so you lived in those towers. Uh, did they switch you out or did you stay there the, in those towers the entire time? Well, like I said, I was in Shaka Towers, and then they moved our location over to the Swiss Gym, which was oh. 
grand total of about a half mile. So in 2011, I was at Shaka Towers. 2012, we moved over to Swiss Gym. Okay. So which did you prefer? Do you remember? Uh, the cool thing about the Swiss Gym is down in the bottom, there was a little expat uh, cafe down there and literally called the expat cafe and it was run by these uh, two uh, Irish folks and they were pretty amazing folks they put together pretty good food and they didn't gouge us um, huh. so I probably have my fondest memories sitting down there drinking coffee and hanging out okay <clears throat> well speaking of uh, camaraderie and uh, getting along with your 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 fellow workers because uh you, you know, for those that haven't been there, I mean, it's it's like any place else. I mean, where you got a lot of people from around the country or the world, um, a lot of things get in the way. And sometimes you get you develop tight relationships and other times it's like you don't even want to work with the guy anymore. But uh, um, so what what was that like? Um, for, I mean, did you guys have a lot of problems or issues there with that sort of thing or was everything pretty smooth? Um, you know, night shift day shift well i mean as far as problems go you're always going to have various tensions when personalities start to clash you get enough people together in one place but i can honestly say with my experiences there most of us that were there had had tried long enough to get onto contract to get there that we knew that's where we wanted to be so we weren't trying to rock any boats we weren't trying to we didn't walk around with a giant chip on our shoulder trying to piss each other off um, I can say that I developed some really good re- relationships there, some really good friendships. If I had an opportunity to bring in a friend in the States over to it, I was constantly trying to recruit pals in because mm. it's nice to know the person that's standing next to you or that's got your back. Right. Um, and, and funny thing about Nashville and Tennessee is since I've been here, which is equivalent about six months, I, I've discovered that there's about 12 of us from Triple Canopy that are within a day's drive of me here. So this seems to be like a retirement community for <laughs> former Force Pro guys. Um, but uh, no, it, it, I, I, I would compare it to, to the military, not quite as much. You know, there's nothing like hanging out with infantrymen infantrymen do what infantrymen do and that's that's a whole nother world all by itself but the one thing about it is uh when you've been in the military or you've been as a contractor and you've worked overseas i don't know if it's eating non-gmo food or drinking water that's not chlorinated to death but you start to think a little differently you see things a little differently and it's almost like waking out of a haze and you find yourself in these really deep conversations that you just don't have stateside with, with your typical civilian. And, uh, I found that a lot more in common with contractors and military personnel than I ever did anywhere else. So yeah, yeah, there's a pretty warm spot in my heart when it comes to the people I met with and work with over there. So yeah, that's kind of how that went. Right. Isn't that the truth? I mean, it, it, that is one of those things that we often talk, we know, and sometimes talk about amongst ourselves or, or think to ourselves when we get home and look around and it's like, wow. And, you know, and for that reason, I mean, that and other reasons, guys say, Hey, they call up their, their dude at the company. Say, I want back in. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> so, uh, uh, so when you were over there, you know, um, I remember a time when they, uh, you know, doing over there in Kuwait, there was ASPs and fuel, dump, uh, uh, fuel areas 
and and uh, what's it uh, the convoy areas. Uh, some of them on the bases, some of them outside the bases uh, that, that had to be covered down on. Uh, did they? Were you guys still doing that when you were there? Yeah, we had uh, one bag farm right there near Arif John. And uh, if you got tapped for it once in a while, you might have to work it for a week or two. And the bag farm was kind of cool because it, it, it puts you a little further out. You You didn't have Starbucks and Burger King and stuff for lunch. So you had to call in orders. So you got typically better food brought to you. Yeah. And uh, you were away from the, the prying eyes of, of Big Army as well as, you know, the, the black hats running around trying to hem up people for snoozing in the towers or whatever. So a lot less drama. It was just that, that was kind of a little break from the day to day. Right. Yeah. Bag farm. I forgot about that term, but that's exactly what. And, and, and when you get there, it's like, oh, that's why they call it bags. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> these these okay. huge bladders just pumped full of fuel. Yeah, it's like. And in the middle of 130 degree heat, you just the whole time you're thinking, how is this safe? What's about to happen? (laughs) Along with some other stuff. But yeah. um, So they still have the black hats, the the supervisor people. They're still doing that. Uh, Yeah. You still had your 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 super sergeants running around trying to be in charge of stuff. When I was there, there was still triple canopy was still fairly paramilitary. And that's that's what they were pushing. Interesting. Okay. <clears throat> and was it still blousing the, 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 the trousers around the boots? Uh, I, I, I want to say yes, but I don't recall blousing my boots. You know what? No, because I had a pair of Danners there that I'd wear once in a while. And they were okay. they were only about a six-inch ankle. So, yeah, no, I, I don't think so. Nice, because there was a time when, when, when that, was, that was the case, and... Uh, you know, if you were, you know, in the flagpole, you know, there on, on air Jan, depending on where you were, you kind of, you know, had to. Otherwise, you know, you risk getting too many reprimands and going home. But a lot of us, you know, we, we found ways around that and volunteered constantly to go do stuff off air of Jan, in part for those reasons. Um, <laughs> but, you know, paramilitary mentality is like, really, guys, come on. Um, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, and I mentioned ASP, so, so for those folks that don't know, uh, well, first let me ask you, did they still have those things out there, ASPs and some of the other things you guys went to? ASP, familiarize me with the acronym. Uh, the, the ammunition supply points. Okay, uh, yeah. Um, yeah in, in fact, they were they, they were MSPs, but yeah, we, we still had uh, ammo supply points and, and stuff that were out there. Um, that's typically where, where most of your, your night shift guys wound up, uh, was, was out there. Um, I, I want to say it was 17 or something like that. I can't remember the, the place just right. North of Arif John, but yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. There was, there was one way out there and then there was another one on Arif Jan. Was it still there? Um, <laughs> on the floor, but it was that, somehow attached to Arif Jan. Yeah, the one that's right next to where they used to test all the the vehicles that were coming in for maintenance. I think so. Yeah, yeah. there was yeah one tower. I, I remember sitting there watching them run it around their little dirt cars and stuff. So yeah, I want to say you still had an, an ammo supply point inside. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay, and uh, so now acquaint people that are listening. You know, uh, a lot of people probably have no idea what force protection is or what it entails. Um, and, and in some areas, force protection is kind of like, you know, take your dog for a walk kind of work, but in other places at other times, depending on the tempo, it can be pretty serious stuff. 
Um, would you mind walking the folks through, explaining to them what force protection is, what it entails, and what people do, and what they might be expected to do? Well, from from my my side, um, well, from the outside of Arif, John, you, you have the the first point you reach where all your commercial trucks and stuff have to come in and get searched before they're even allowed access up to the gates to enter into the you know, Air John proper, you have this area we call the lanes and they would bring in all the trucks and you'd have uh, force pro as well as at that point in time, we had Nepalese contractors that were working with us. And those guys were awesome. Little Gurkha guys, mm. but you're doing all of your pat downs and human searches and you'll do like large vehicle searches where you're mirroring the trucks and every once in a while, canine will come out there and they'll run the lines with them and stuff too. And then they move up to the, the, ECPs and uh, the entry control points is where you have your smaller vehicle searches, um, less uh, hands-on people searches for the contractors, more for for people that are coming in from outside. Um, And they have like a, I guess you could say pedestrian entry point, and then you have the vehicle entry point. And we're working all of those as well. As far as people coming in at the same time, you have, exit control points where you have at least one person out there on one golf, which was like hell on earth because you were out there for 12 hours getting drilled into the cement by yourself, but you're checking all the convoys and all the paperwork and stuff coming out of the base. And then you get into the perimeters of that base and every, I don't know, it's 150, 200 meters. You have a tower and most of those towers are loosely armored. They'll have maybe ballistic grade glass, but for the most part, it's just an aluminum shoebox with a AC unit attached to it that you hope never breaks with a, a little rail around the outside. And you spend 12 hours day or night staring out and making sure that nothing's walking up on the fence. Um, and then on the corners, you have your reinforced towers, your, your rooks, your, your, and that's where you find your 240 gunners. And fortunately, I, I was 240 qualified, so I got to hang out in that one. And those are way better for many reasons. One, they stay cooler. Two, the ACs always work. And three, nobody can sneak up on you. You hear them coming a mile away. And uh, again, it's basically the same thing, staring out and uh, just making sure that you're awake and nobody's walking up on the base. Force protection is just that. You're just making sure that the forces are protected. Right. Yeah, um, you know, it's it's a lot of times people take it for granted, and sometimes even the guys and, and occasionally gals probably more now. So, but uh, I mean, they sometimes get looked down upon, or people take the vent their frustrations and anger on those people because they're doing their job and they're doing what oftentimes is a very important job. Some would argue all the time it's it's very important. Um, I mean, you got, uh, so 130 degree weather, 120, 140, whatever happens to be that day in the summertime, uh, inside or outside, you're, uh, you're, you're, you're sweating to the oldies yeah. for the whole time, right? <laughs> well, at least for the first month or two that you're there and then somehow your body seems to adjust to it. And I don't even know how that's possible because even when I'm skinny, I'm still a fluffy guy. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't. I don't know how that is, but yeah, after about three months, even the, 
you get to a point to where after about 115, 120 degrees, you don't even feel the temperature change anymore. It's just hot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, and yeah, that's that's true. The, 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 and then the perspiration that you might have had, yeah. unless you're sweating it out in the tunnels there searching stuff, um, I mean, it pretty much dries before it comes out. So, I mean, you're right. Unless you're really hoofing it out there um and then stop yeah i mean you, you basically don't sweat right right yeah and I, I like i said i can't explain that because you know, definitely for the first month and a half you're there you're just melting your uniforms right. are just full of starch and you only get three of them so when you're working six days a week you're going to be wearing some dirty uniforms at some point right yeah. wow <laughs> okay um now uh and yeah, so so those things that uh, I mean, you know, we we don't we don't need to go too deep into all that stuff. But I mean, just uh, you know, like you could, I remember, and I'm guessing you had the same experience or similar. You could, especially in the summertime, you could drink the equivalent of a couple or several gallons of water through that 12-hour shift. Yes. And maybe maybe have to use the, the toilet once. Maybe. Yep. <laughs> That's how it, that's that's how hot it is and how much you're sweating, even though you don't realize you're sweating. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. absolutely right. One hundred percent. You go through a, a full case of, of water just sitting there and <laughs> uh, maybe use the bathroom once. And that's that's how you know how hydrated you are. And even then, you know, it, it, people make fun of those little P charts where, you know, you got the, the black, you're dead and, the you know, yellow, you're well hydrated or whatever the heck it is. But, right. yeah, you're relatively proud of those particular shades that you can hit that say <laughs> I'm doing a good job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, did, now, now, did you guys still do perimeter patrols of, of the bases out there when you were there? Uh, no, not not to my knowledge. Um, closest you'd come is you'd have a supervisor or, or a runner that was making sure that batteries and stuff were being brought out to the towers and they would drive along the perimeter. Um, you had military police on the outside every once in a while that would, that would go do a drive by. Um, but for the most part, no, yeah, I don't recall okay. anybody out there driving around, especially out at the ACPs. Okay. So now, did they still, at your time, did they have what uh, a friend of mine called uh, LISO or the Law Enforcement Support Officers? Did they yes. still have that? They still have that. Yeah, you still okay. have your LISOs out there. And uh, most of them that they that get into the LISO program are former MPs or, or even civilian law enforcement that manage to stumble into contracting and they get picked up for it. But uh, it's a pretty neat program over there. And it's... Uh, still fairly well involved and they work hand in hand with CID. And like I said, if there happens to be a reserve military police unit coming through or whatever. Interesting. Now uh, you mentioned CID. We know what that is, uh, but for folks that are listening that maybe weren't in the military, can you tell them what CID is? Uh, Criminal investigations division. Uh, Typically in Kuwait, their duties were more involved with things like uh, uh, black market smuggling, um, anything coming in through the U.S. Postal Service that, that isn't supposed to be in the country, alcohol, drugs, stuff like that. Um, some limited interaction with drug trafficking there. Um, they, they have other things that they're involved in that, you know, 
depending on our relationships with Kuwait this week or next week, it might be considered sensitive. I never had to sign a non-disclosure on it, though. So, yeah, they, they're always looking for human trafficking and things like that as well. So, uh, which if you've been there, you know as well as I do, any Friday market, you can go and buy anything from a monkey to a sex slave. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I laugh. You know, and it's, but I laugh sardonically. I, yeah, I probably should, but you're right. I mean, you know, I've, you know, in that region of the world, pick your country. You're absolutely right. I mean, if you've got the money and you, you can find somebody, you can get whatever it is you want. You're right. Yep. Um, and a lot of guys got in trouble for doing those things. Um, you know, I don't know so much now, but um, I remember it was pretty ripe uh, for a time when I was out there, but. <laughs> Um, so they still have the LISO program. Now, did you get picked up for that with your, with your MP background? I tried. Um, but, uh, I, I don't know if it was just bad timing or, or if they, you know, found somebody better at some point by the time I, I was ready to leave Kuwait, I was ready to leave Kuwait. I really didn't care what they threw at me anymore. Triple canopy. Huh. Had had sort of worn out its welcome with me. The first year you're there is always sort of the honeymoon phase. By the end of the second year, you're ready to go home. <laughs> right. Okay. So uh, now, did you work at Arifjan before going to Beering, or was it the other way around? You said Arifjan, right? I I worked primarily at Arifjan. Like I said, the only time I went to Beering was for for training stuff, um, or if we were doing, like I said, an escort. Okay. Uh, so it, it it was minimal. I, I was there enough to eat at a couple of their little restaurants they still had left there and mm. fire up their ranges. And that's pretty much what we were using Beering for. Okay. So did, did you did you have a preference? I mean, if, if, if you could say, yeah, this is the place I want to work, did you have a preference between the two? Oh, I would have picked Arif, John. It just, yeah? Yeah. The Beering from pretty much any place in Kuwait City where the Beering guys live is – almost a 90 minute drive one way every morning. Right. And, uh, yeah, there's no way I'm going to do that. Work 12 hours, drive <laughs> back, try to accomplish whatever I need to accomplish, sleep for the two and a half, maybe three hours, get up, wash and repeat. That's just no. Yeah. Um, I remember working out there just for a brief period of time, a week or two. And it's like, how do these guys do it, man? Am I glad I'm done here? Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so what was your, what, of all the things you did out there, uh, whether it was a task or mission, whatever it was, job, was there one that you really enjoyed? In Kuwait or Iraq or? Either or both. Uh, in Kuwait, one job that I enjoyed, uh, I, for a little while, I was being considered for a promotion to a sergeant. I, I just didn't happen to be a Freemason at the time, so it, it was sort of a roadblock for me. Um, and uh, I enjoyed that process. I enjoyed getting up and doing the morning trainings, and I enjoyed going out and hitting the other towers. It, there was a little bit more diversity to the job, um, but it was just it was a break from the mundane. Whereas yeah. Iraq, like I'd mentioned. That place from the time I got off the ground to the time I left there, every day I was there, you had to have your A game with you. you. You had to know what you were doing. If you weren't a subject matter expert, own it, but you were expected to become one by the end of the day. Go. <laughs> and uh, 
I loved that. It was, I was constantly learning. I, I, I went there with a, you know, this, this heavy end security and infantry background with a little bit of Intel. And I left there as a, as a drone pilot, I left there with a geospatial understanding. I left there being able to give, you know, full on safety and security briefings to whoever needed it. I could, I, I, I was expected to have that expertise. If, if you mm. needed to have, you know, a full on open source Intel analysis done, you were expected to be the guy to sit down and do a full on in so open source Intel analysis, mm. and know where to go and what to find and who to, you, you built your assets, you developed your assets and you used your network. And ah. that was every day. And I loved it. Okay. So, so out of Kuwait into Iraq now, so where, where did you work? Can you, I mean, not specifically, but can you tell folks at least generally oh, where you worked? Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, there's nothing super secret about it. I was at Balad Air Force Base, which is about 60 miles. Uh, I guess it's what Northeast of Baghdad. Um, and uh, probably one of the only functioning, uh, truly functioning Iraqi Air Force bases left there. Um, and we were working with Sallyport Global, Lockheed Martin, as well as uh, some Department of Defense assets, because they're always interested whenever a country's picking up some F-16s. And basically helping them breathe new life into this air force base that had basically been for all in, all, all intents and purposes abandoned in 2011 and uh for for the people that are listening that may have been there prior to 2011 if you saw it now even though it looks great now compared to what it did when i got there your heart would break because it it, it used to be the shining sea in, in the middle of the desert mm. if, if you got to go to anaconda if you got to you know get get out of the junk for a little while and head on up to Balad, then you knew that they were going to have massive swimming pools. They had, you know, four PXs on base, a full-size movie theater. They basically had anything and everything you could hope to find. None of that stuff is left. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That, that's, uh, I haven't been there, but I remember the, uh, the last time I was at BBC, and I don't remember the exact year that was, they had a very similar situation, and, and it was a it was a sad thing because uh, you you remember what it used to be like, and it's like whoa. Yeah. Um. So okay, so you're up in Balad, um, and uh, that's not that's an area I think I maybe traveled through via helicopter or something like that, but I don't think I ever I, I'm pretty sure I never spent any time there, but I know a lot of guys who have. Um. But so that's where you worked uh, with HIT. You said. Yeah, as Homeland Intelligence Technologies. Okay, and and they're a U.S.-based firm, yes. Yeah, uh, they're they're based out of Largo, Florida, um, but uh, up until this year, primarily their biggest contract was in Pakistan. They uh, uh, had some stuff that they helped the Pakistani Air Force and U.S. Air Force develop for a program out there, similar to what they were doing in Balad. And, uh, but yeah, the company itself is based in Largo, Florida. Okay. So, so what was life like for you in Balad with your time with, with HIT? Cause you mentioned some companies that are, you know, pretty well-known companies, um, out there. Uh, and, and then, you know, how that contrasts with life in Kuwait with the other company. 
that that's the funny part is uh kuwait had anything and everything you could hope to to get you had you had a physical address you could go to any store if you a movie was out chances are it was in their theaters if not you could always find a bootleg copy of it somewhere um you know, the, anything you wanted, anything you needed. If you were craving Italian food, there was a restaurant in town that had had that. If, if you wanted KFC, they might not have Kentucky Fried Chicken there, but there was probably a knockoff place that had something close. Mm. Whereas in Balad, you didn't have a physical address. Um, so getting mail was just non-existent. You were relying on people that were rotating back and forth on leave to mm. maybe bring you something back. Um, we had a couple little bacalas on Balad where you could actually get some food or, or stuff. And of course they'd gas the hell out of you for being a, a contractor, but it wasn't horrible. Mm. But in Balad, I had better living conditions as far as my room, my space. It, it was mine. I worked under a much smaller team. I didn't have the worries of big army sticking their nose in on everything. Um, and you were expected to, you know, have a lot more responsibility and treated as though you had a lot more responsibility. So you were trusted a little bit more to, to make right decisions on your own and go do your own thing. Um, and uh, like I said, those those relationships, that was that was much closer to what it's like in the military as far as the people you work with work out with, eat with, spend your, your, your downtime with you, you live with these guys all day long. There is no break and one team goes one way and one team goes the other way. You are with those people all year long. And, uh, that's a big, that's, I'm sorry, go ahead. uh, I I was just saying, I just, I thoroughly enjoyed Balad much more than I did Kuwait. Yeah. I think I can tell, um, I mean, and I was going to say, you know, it's interesting, maybe curious, um, because a lot of us have experienced uh, something si- same or similar. If we spend any time in Kuwait before moving on, um, what you talked about, it's like that that henpecking, micromanaging, you know, where they just never really quite completely trust you. I mean, some guys, you know, you, you, you know, you can you can get them to say, hey, you know, we don't need to look over this guy 24 hours a day, you know, check in on him in the morning, like everybody else, leave him alone until the end of the shift. But when you get out there, like you're talking about Iraq, Afghanistan, and some of the other places, um, you know, you're, you're more considered one of the guys, you're a professional and it's big boy rules. And they, as long as you show up and do your job, uh, pretty much everybody's happy and leaves you alone. I mean, that's, I'm simplifying it, but it was, is, I'm guessing that's what you're saying, and was that your experience? 100%. Just quality of life w- was improved immensely just in being trusted to do the job I was hired to go do. Right. Now, do you have you ever thought about why that is, why it's so 180 in Kuwait? Uh, wait, my, my biggest guess would be that because the Army isn't directly involved with it. Um, mm. Like I said, we we fell under Sallyport Global, who who were the the umbrella contract over everything, and we were Sallyport's liaisons to the Iraqi Air Force. So we were mm. kind of instrumental between the umbrella company and Iraqi Air Force's conversations on what needed to be done. And 
in, in, in being in that position, that gatekeeper position, I guess, I don't know if it was so much as we were trusted or is that they didn't have any other choice than to, you know, just let us do our thing. As long as the DOD came in and would do their inspections and we were on target moving in the right direction, Sally Port was happy. So they left us alone. Nice. Now, you know, there, there's an old saying and you occasionally hear it uh, throughout the years. Uh, no matter where you go, no matter what you're doing, uh, just assume that somebody is always watching and listening. Did you feel that way in Iraq? Uh, as far as espionage or just your typical no. nosy yeah. nancies? Yeah, that, you know, cameras and people, you know, intruding and trying to horn in. You know, I mean, did you feel like you were being treated like an adult and a professional? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I felt like it was okay. being treated as right. an adult. But uh, as, as far as other people monitoring us, that you're going to find that everywhere you go. Um, and it, it, it's especially present in overseas contracting. Um, right. Well, yeah. And, and I'm not I'm not, uh, you know, I mean, it, I, uh, I guess what I'm trying to, you know, what I was hearkening at is that. I mean, I just always assumed when I was working or traveling, it didn't matter that somebody was seeing me, somebody was listening, um, or at least trying to. Um, and that's just the way I operated. So, you know, everywhere from just making sure that you're very open about it and everybody knows about it yeah. or try to be very, very stealthy about it. <laughs> well, it, like I said, every, everybody's watching, um, especially when you're in a gatekeeper position. So we were real careful when we were out in the public eye. That we were always, you know, it, it, at least if we weren't by the numbers, we were at least putting on a show like we knew what the hell we were doing. Because um, <laughs> you're, you're hip pocketing a lot of stuff. I mean, a lot of yeah. things we were doing were unprecedented and you had to be able to adjust on the fly. And that was one of those things that I was able to call upon from being an in, in, infantryman. If you've, once you've done that and you know you got a Semper Gumby your way from point A to point B, it don't matter how you get there, just get there. Yeah. <laughs> You, you, you right. become pretty good at doing that. Right. And you hear the boss sometimes, you know, uh, whether it's in the military or contracting, you know, telling you what you just said, basically, I don't care how you do it. Just do it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. OK. So while you were there in Iraq, you know, I asked you this uh, earlier. So in Iraq, was there was there what one or maybe more than one thing was there about what you did or where you were that you thoroughly enjoyed? Or is there more than one? Yeah, it, it was. There was a lot of stuff. After a while, I I had a little bit of an audio video background from information operations days, and I got tapped to be the 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 guy that was in charge of putting together everybody else's. I guess because wherever we went, we were taking photos, we were recording activities, we we're doing everything. So we were sort of the 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 post historians. It didn't matter if you worked. With Sallyport Security, if you were part of the construction teams, if you were part of the fighter crew and you were learning, you know, that the, the pilots or the Iraqi Air Force or their different sporting events, whatever, we had the pictures, we had the videos and people would come to us to put together these little, you know, snapshots and times for so that they could show their people this is how far we've come or whatever. And I was always mm -hmm. being tapped as the guy to put those things together. And then 
every once in a while somebody's going to pass away and i was sort of the the mortuary affairs guy at that point i was the one that would put together the little memorial videos for everybody and hey hmm. i'm i'm proud of some of those um some of them have actually been uploaded to youtube and have thousands of hits and it's like i'm a little humbled that something i did had that much effect on anybody and those are the kinds of things i enjoy okay so now was there an aspect of what you did or where you worked that if you care to talk about it uh that you didn't particularly care for or like uh either kuwait iraq or both uh, kuwait had so many of those um <laughs> take your pick <laughs> thing is is it is like all things it's you just sooner or later you just got to suck it up and do it um i'd mentioned ecp1 at, on Arif john where you're where you're 12 hours just standing there's there's no real place to sit down it's just convoy after convoy after convoy leaving so there's you're, you're just cooking that that was a miserable duty to do um the lanes outside when you're doing the pat down searches of all the foreign truckers coming in and all these guys i'm i'm going to use some some mildly insensitive language but you, you get all these guys coming in in man dresses and uh they're they're free balling straight out and it's 130 degrees and you got to put hands all over these guys and i never ever found any pleasure in any part of that it was the most <laughs> horrifying thing i've ever had to do and you do it on mass you're you're checking 1500 people a day and uh yeah that's uh that kind of stuff i could have done without as far as iraq the only thing that i really kind of got me over there was there was always shady stuff going on. Whenever you have competing contracting companies on the same location, you're always going to have people trying to find ways to slip a dagger between your ribs. And I just never really understood that there was more than enough money there for everybody to get apart and to sit mm. there and deliberately try to cut somebody out for a bigger profit share. It just seemed petty. Yeah. Um, from what I've, from what I understand, it's gotten really, well, not, I mean, I don't remember how many years ago, maybe three or five years ago is when it really started. Uh, I'm guessing around 2012, 2013, but it got worse around 2015. I think 2015 is when it really got, that's when we saw the hyper competitiveness, uh, for lack of a better term. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Yeah. So you got, yeah. you got people out there that are, I mean, like I said, they're on contract. They got a job. They're gainfully employed, but they're out there trying to steal your contract too. And it's just why? Oh, man. And some of it's pretty brazen, too, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Right out in the open. They don't try to hide it. <laughs> Remember the first time I saw, well, it was, I don't think it was the first time, but the first time I saw something that was just openly brazen right there on a on a fob, and I'm looking at it, and, and I knew instantly what was going on, and one of them involved somebody on the in the company that, you know, and I'm going, wow, really? <laughs> you know uh so i know exactly what you're talking that yeah that's amazing um okay so uh, so you finished that up you uh and when you were so after kuwait you went to iraq and then when you were done that's when you went home for the last time is that correct right that was uh oh april 2016 i came home um like i said i was trying to save a marriage so i, I was stuck in austin for a little bit um i'd kind of nuked the bridge with the last contract security company i worked with in austin so 
uh, going back to that wasn't really an option anymore. Mm. And uh, when uh, the marriage thing fell apart, that was when Hit reached out to me and I, I picked up the gig down in Brownsville. And uh, I, I worked down there with ICE and did that for a year. And then June of last year, we came off that contract. And I ping-ponged around a little bit trying to figure out where the hell I was going to go. I didn't really have a home or a life anymore to go back to. Mm. And a friend of mine that I'd worked with both in Austin on contract and in Kuwait on contract, uh, I reached out to him about what was available here in Nashville, and here I am. So mm. so, your life, so, you, so your life has changed for the better since you've come back? You, oh, I have. I would not say that. <laughs> I, uh, I'm in a better place now than I was last year. Um, had I to do it all over again, I wish I'd have stayed in Iraq. If I'd have known that the marriage was just going to fall apart, I would have just finished mm-hmm. out another year there because I could have used an extra 110,000. Um, right. but, uh, that's just so, not so- the way the crooked crumbled. So here I am. Right. So in hindsight, based on what you just said, uh, if you knew then what you know now, yeah. would you have stayed there and or remained on contract either with HIT or another company? Would you still be doing it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. If I if I could have slipped into Sally Port's good graces while I was there, I would have stayed there. Um, okay. Yeah, because HIT wound up coming off contract from Sally Port in 2017 or mm. around, yeah, March of 2017. So, uh, right. So do you have any, uh, would you, would you care to proffer any advice to anybody, um, that's, that's considering or thinking about, uh, getting into overseas contracting? Yeah. Um, a couple things. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not necessarily a young man's game. I worked with some some former South African Defense Force guys that were in their 60s and 70s, and they were some of the best guys I've ever worked with before in my life. Um, but it is something that you don't necessarily want to do for the long time unless you're you're a single fella. If you if you're married with kids and you want to remain married with kids, um, I highly recommend you know go back to school, do whatever you need to do to find a better paying job, but contracting. I wouldn't throw more than a year or two into it. Um, if it's something you're looking to do uh, career-wise or as a means to an end, which is at this point what I'm looking for, um, then do it. Just just pull the trigger. Don't make any excuses about it. If you find an opportunity, and it's still pretty much who you know, um, but if you can find somebody to, to break in. If you know the names of some companies, like for example, Kinsellis just lost a rather large force pro contract in Afghanistan. Another mm-hmm. security company called Reed, who I have experience with in Iraq, came in and they've now got it. So I've been beating mm-hmm. that guy's door down like there's no tomorrow. And I'm you, you can guarantee that I'm pulling every, hey man, I've been there. I've done this for you string ever trying mm-hmm. to get a hold of it. Um, don't just blanket recruiting websites. Don't just go to the ladders. Don't just go to LinkedIn. Go to that website. Go to the contact us page. Find a recruiter and call them. Have them reach out to you. Once you're talking to them personally, 
those wheels will start spinning way faster than sitting there waiting for somebody to beat up your inbox. Hmm. Okay. Good advice. Yeah. Um, do you think your military, do you think military being former military and or former law enforcement is, is, uh, is a help to somebody or an advantage to somebody either getting a job over there and or uh, staying there? Advantage, yes. Um, necessary, no. And I've worked with some great contractors that had zero military experience um, that had, for whatever reason, fell into the position out of a logistics position or hadn't done much more than worked armed guard for a federal contract. You know, they, they just happened to have an OPM contract or OPM clearance and a couple years armed experience. I like I said, an advantage, yes, but not necessary. Okay. Okay. Good. So, um, where you're at now, you're, um, what's, what has changed? I mean, what, what's, what's your life like now? What, what, what are you doing and what's different and, and what are your plans for the future? Well, like I said, right now, Nashville is, is the closest thing to a home I have. Um, working for a Federal Protective Services again on, an, on another contract here. Um, basically, security for they, – they do federal courthouses, Social Security Administration offices, stuff like that. But uh, it's good money. It's not bad. This is the first job I've had in a while that pays on a weekly basis, and that has its own advantages. Mm. Um I am trying to get back into contracting, uh, overseas contracting, preferably. But I also just found out that through the VA, they also offer a vocational rehab program where they will pay for different technical schools. So now suddenly I'm torn. I'm pushing 50 and I'm like, ooh, would they pay for a commercial pilot's license? I could be a commercial pilot. I'd like to be a commercial pilot. So, I mean, if it all depends on the, the way the wind blows. I would say I'm much more optimistic now than I was two, three years ago. Okay. Now, this, this time last year, I, I got to tell you, things were getting pretty damn dark because I'd lost my contract, my my marriage, my everything. You know, I'm pretty much in the middle of nowhere with nothing. And wow. uh, yeah, as as bad as 2020 has been, it's it's actually been a recoup year for me. So I'm doing okay. All right. Okay. Uh, no, and I'm putting this a little backward. I should have asked you this question first. Um, <laughs> you you said you did a little time or work or did something on contract with ICE, correct? Yeah, that was through uh, Homeland Intelligence Technologies also. Um, and they had a an aviation program where basically we were site operations managers for – we had Miami, uh, Alexandria – or I'm sorry uh, – yeah, Alexandria, Louisiana, mm. uh, San Antonio, Brownsville, Texas, and Phoenix, Arizona. And huh. uh, <clears throat> basically what we did was we made sure that the security personnel that, that needed to be on the flight were on site ready to go, that all the search procedures were being done right, that all the manifests were done right, that all the fuel loads were properly being administered to the to the aircraft and if pilots needed anything the aircrafts were taken care of if the airplanes needed anything the air crews were taken care of 
And we were we were basically the ones that were tracking all of that for the umbrella company that was over that particular program. And uh, not naming any names there because there were some bridges burned in that one and some lawsuits and some stuff. So but anyway. Hmm. <clears throat> OK. <laughs> yeah. And that was a great gig. Uh, the only thing with that is being an operations manager. Those operations run. They start from the wee hours of the morning and they run until the wee hours of the morning. So it wasn't unusual to do a 20 hour day. Wow. You talk about a shift, a single shift. Yeah. And well, I mean, your salary. So there's you, you can call it a shift if you want. It's a lifestyle <laughs> choice. That's uh, yeah. OK, so uh, let me ask you. So with your. Uh, after you got out of the military and you did your contracting and you came back, did you find that? that trail helped you get to where you're at now well yeah it definitely got me in because once once you know everything had dried up getting into a, another job because security is one of those jobs it's there, there's always going to be a need for security just kind of like mortuary affairs people are already going to always going to be dying and people are always going to want to protect their stuff and uh so getting getting back involved if anything i would say it's my my resume is <laughs> it's mild fireside reading if if you just if happen to want to put down your copy of Ivanhoe for a little while but want the same you know literary challenge uh, so so it's it's definitely helped get me to where I'm at um, and it's opened a lot of doors I, I could pretty much pick up a phone and call any contract security company in the United States and they they would more or less find a home for me right away. Hmm. Well, that's got to be a good feeling, right? Yeah. I I just I need to find the one that's going to pay me what I want to make. <laughs> well, like I yeah. Said, uh, but I, I get that. But I mean, it, yeah. it's kind of nice that you know after you after you you know pay your dues, so to speak. You know, you you've earned your stripes, whatever. You you've you've done what you've done. It's kind of nice to know that somebody somewhere recognizes that effort. And, and and you can get jobs that you maybe otherwise couldn't get. Oh, absolutely. And okay. Yeah. Like, like I said, there's there's always a comfort to it. It's just, you know, if you don't have that support chain outside of it, there's very few, very few jobs that are as far reaching and I guess you could say as well entrenched as, as security. Right. Um, so. Huh. Now you seem you seem to you seem to be pretty. Uh, I'm not sure these are the right words, but you seem to be pretty at ease and a pretty decent sense of humor. You, it's it's like you seem like you've learned a lot about life and yourself through all this, and so you seem you seem to be coming out of it and and uh, I would maybe not smelling like roses, but it seems like you're doing pretty good, and and the future looks bright. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there, there's. I, I've been humbled a lot throughout you know, my life, but uh, huh. no, you, 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 if you can't laugh, uh, all you're left with is being angry and crying, and that'll eat a hole in you faster than any cancer on the planet. So mm. yeah, you know, you, you got to stay positive on everything. That's that's if I if I've learned anything through the military, or this is they they can break you down in almost any way, but if you never let them have your spirit, it's yours forever. So wow. just hang on to it. Nicely put. Nicely put. All right, William. So uh, as we wrap this up, uh, I want to uh, uh, 
first, I want to thank uh, Mr. Ledford for uh, being my guest on this episode, taking time out of his day. Um, he's got a schedule that sometimes interferes. So fortunately, he didn't have to say, I got to go <laughs> in the middle of this. I want to thank the folks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Um, folks, stay safe, stay frosty. Remember to be careful what you wish for out there. And until next time, folks, keep it real. Take a look.